wages of sin is death. Should terrorists ever be released from prison? Welcome to the Two Ways Ministries podcast. I'm Philip Jensen. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that they in which he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And having eaten the fruit that he was told not to eat of, then we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, that God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. The New Testament concludes that the wages of sin is death. Justice is a strange thing, is it not? It's so simple, it's straightforward, giving people what we deserve. But what do we deserve? And how do we pay for what we've done? You commit the crime, you're found guilty, and you pay the penalty that the court sets you. But what if you've finished paying the penalty? Should you be released, for you have paid the price of your sin, of your crime? Should you be released? back into society? The history of Australia, of course, came with convicts who were sent to the ends of the earth from Britain. But the governor, especially Governor Macquarie, saw that once people had paid their price, once they'd done their time, then they should be emancipated. They should be freed as full members of society. Some of the free people who had come out not as convicts were not happy with these ex-convicts being part of society, but Macquarie was very strong on the issue that once you've paid your price, you've paid it and there is no further penalty that should be established against you. It's a simple form of justice, of righteousness. But now, in the 21st century, we have a problem. One issue, there are some families of people who fought as ISIS soldiers who are left stranded in the Middle East, and our government is considering bringing home the families. Should we allow them back into society when they were warned not to leave? Should the children who were born overseas and who know nothing of it really, should they be in some ways punished for what their fathers did? How do we handle the issue of people who held to terrorist ideology returning to Australia. Some people say they should never be allowed back in because we can't trust them. Others say, well, it's not fair to keep them out of Australia. After all, they're citizens of Australia or they've been born into the situation. It's not their fault. But a bigger problem is the problem of the terrorists who are in prison, of which we have quite a few here in Australia. Terrorists who plan to do terrible things within our society and were given long sentences, 20-year sentences, and now the sentence is coming to an end. Now they have done their time. They have paid their price. They have fulfilled what the justice requires of them. Do we release them? Can we release them? Do we trust them back into society? On what grounds can we hold them still prisoners? Should we hold them as still prisoners? What do we do with them? 
retain them in detention? That's one option. Release them with some kind of electronic tags to monitor them. Release them as free citizens because they've done their time. In 2016, the government brought a continuing detention order. It's it's unique to Australia, the other Western countries don't have it, where they can be kept in prison for three years with an annual review. Is this appropriate? Is this right? Can you hold a person in prison after they have paid what the courts required of them? And on what basis does the government hold people in prison? And what justice can there be to be kept in prison for something you haven't yet done for fear that you may do it? In 2021, extended supervision orders were brought in where, yes, they can be released, but only under certain very tight controls. But again, are they not emancipated? Have they not done their time? But to release them as free citizens, well, that's very dangerous, isn't it, if they are going to continue in their actions of terrorism? Do we release them, waiting for them to do what is wrong so that we can lock them up again? <laughs> what is the point of this? What is the, what is the principle upon which we're offering? It's a real problem for government. The government has a responsibility to act justly and to bring justice and to be just. But what is the justice in this situation? The government also has a a desire to protect society. And if these people are a danger to society, if they're going to let off bombs in public places, if they're going to cause mayhem in the streets, well, certainly the government has a responsibility to protect the citizenry from such people. The government also is very keen to protect themselves. Because if something does go wrong, then everybody will blame the government that released this person. It will be the fault of the prisons that allowed them to go, or the probation officers, or the... They will get blamed. And so governments have a very vested interest in keeping people out of any possibility of causing damage to society. Of course, the great scheme is rehabilitation that these people will, after years in prison, be rehabilitated so that they will no longer hold the kind of terrorist ideology that they had which led them to get into trouble with the law in the first place. But rehabilitation is so difficult. And how can we know if a person has been rehabilitated of their ideology, especially an ideology which allows them to kill, allows them to tell lies allows them to mislead their captors. Can we be sure that they have been rehabilitated? In fact, can they be sure they've been rehabilitated? They may feel in the context of psychological counselling and advice in prison and support systems that are available to them that, yes, they've changed, but when they come back out amongst their old friends, when they come back out into the context in which they previously were radicalised, will they return to that radical view that they held beforehand? Recidivism is a very hard thing to measure There are statistical probabilities. There are psychological tools that can be used, but none of the statistical probabilities or the psychological tools give us a 100% assurance of what will happen. It's not fair 
to the individual that they be lumped in with everybody else who may continue to do the crime when they themselves have been somehow changed in their hearts or minds so that they won't do the crime. How can we judge recidivism? We have a similar problem, of course. We have a similar problem with sexual predators. It is considered that there is an almost 100% recidivism amongst them, and so they are kept on in confinement beyond the payment of their price. The problem of not releasing people is that justice is not being served. Society may be protected. There may be more time to correct them. It may act as a deterrent for other would-be terrorists. But the problem with those kinds of arguments is that they are never just. Not in themselves. You haven't done the crime and yet we can protect society from you. We can correct you for your anti-social thinking. We can deter other people by showing what we would do to someone who would just think such a thought. And so protection, correction, deterrence can be used to put innocent people behind bars. It was the basis, of course, of Stalin and the salt mines in Siberia. People with anti-Soviet thoughts were locked up indeterminately for years, being corrected, being retrained for living back in the Russian society. But people who haven't actually done anything wrong should never be punished by a government, by a court system. Otherwise, it's not justice, it's injustice. And while you may say these particular thoughts, these particular ideologies are ones that we will not accept, who is to say we will not accept them? Who is to say that our society would not be better off agreeing with them? It's natural to say the problem really is in the sentencing. And that may be the case. Maybe we shouldn't put people away for 20 years. We should people put people away for the rest of their natural life. But it would have to be a very serious crime if that is the case, wouldn't it? But then, terrorists, bombings, it is pretty serious. There's very few things more serious than that. Or we can go back to another form of judgment, of punishment, capital punishment. It may not act as a deterrent, but if these people are going to blow up whole groups, communities, if they're going to let off bombs in football stadiums, then do they deserve capital punishment? Part of the problem, of course, is defining terrorism. The old saying has got a certain truth in it that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It depends which side of the fence you're on as to whether you think it's terrorism or not. Terrorism as a term is the use of fear to coerce society to change its actions, its attitudes, its minds, but it's you do something which will terrorise the community as a whole. And in that, as a form of argument, doesn't matter what the issue may be, is a form of argument that we might find unacceptable. However, in most discussions of terrorism, people slip very quickly from terrorism to extremist views. The two things are not the same. You can hold a very extremist view without ever being involved in terrorism. 
without ever letting off bombs or scaring other people, just holding views which in and of themselves are very extreme. Because people muddle these two things together, they roll them in together, the discussion becomes very dangerous. Because extremist views, so-called, can be punished by governments just because of their extremism. When in fact, there is no violence involved. There is no intention of ever creating any terror amongst people. But terrorism is another thing as well. The extremist views can be also. But terrorism involves the violent rejection of society. It's the desire for revolution, for change, without the restrictions of morality or lawfulness. And here we come to an understanding of the nature of the crime and why the decisions about what to do with these people really becomes insoluble in our present debate. You see, there are civil cases between citizens in the courts of the government where disagreements between citizens are settled in a sense of justice. But then there are criminal cases where the government prosecutes before a judge who has separation of powers, who is not part of the government, but because the person has broken the government's laws, so the government prosecutes. And whereas in civil cases people are fined, people are called upon to make compensation, in criminal cases the government's prosecution can actually, if it wins, persuade the judge to put people into prison, to pay at a much higher level. But there is a third level of of court action, which rarely happens today, and that is treason, where the crime is not breaking the law, but rejecting the legal structure. Around the world, especially out of America, there are people called sovereign citizens in the sovereign citizen movement. These are people who claim that they're not under the jurisdiction of the government at all, that they are exempt from the government and from its laws. That kind of rejection of all authority is a different kind of idea than just breaking the rules of the authority. Now, the sovereign citizen may not break any of the rules, but then again, the sovereign citizen may break every rule. As he doesn't acknowledge the right of the rules, he is free to do whatever he wishes to do within his own understanding. Such A view is a view of treason, of rebellion. Treason is the total rejection of the authority. And that, of course, is intolerable. A government cannot exist, a society cannot exist, a nation cannot exist with the populace rejecting all authority. There's no fixed term to pay for the penalty of rejecting authority. Crimes and immoral behaviour will come out of this rejection of authority. You can put people in prison for this crime or this immoral behaviour, this harmful behaviour, but it's very hard to work out a prison sentence that would reasonably fit 
a treasonable heart and behaviour. But that's what the Bible means by the word sin. It's not the crime, they're the sins. It's the rebellion that is our problem. The treasonable rejection of God. That's what eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. When, instead of accepting God and his way in his world, we chose to run our lives our own way, rejecting God, ignoring God, refusing God, rebelling against God. Out of that comes any number of crimes. Out of that comes any number of social harmful actions. But the real crime lies in the rejection of God. And that is why the real punishment is death. For those who are creatures of the living God, who live in rebellion against God, have no right to live in God's world. Any more than those who are treasonable and continue in their treasonable behaviour and life and beliefs have no real place in a society, for the society cannot tolerate people whose intention and aim is to destroy the society. So notice God's punishment. It is the rejection of our life. The wages of sin is death. But you know, the second half of that verse is just so beautiful, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Of course, that's not really what the whole verse says either, does it? Because it explains how God's gift of eternal life can be given to traitors, to treasonable people, to creatures in rebellion against God. How can God maintain justice? How can God maintain his world if he freely gives eternal life to those whose wages really deserve sin, really deserve death? And so it's the last part of the verse which is even more important. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is because of his death on our behalf that we can now be pardoned even of our treason. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ that his death frees us from the rebellion of our lives. We do pray, Father, for our governments that they might act wisely with those who would destroy our societies. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that we may ever rejoice in the knowledge of eternal life and forgiveness that can be found in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this new podcast from Philip Jensen and Two Ways Ministries. Philip will be bringing to you new regular episodes on a variety of topics and current issues. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with his latest. Thank you.